Well, we're going to do a series through Matthew's gospel, the first few chapters for Advent. This indeed, if you can believe it, is the first Sunday of Advent, November 29th. And as you can see, the title for this morning's sermon is Hope for a COVID Christmas. It's hard for me to believe that it's already the first Sunday of Advent. Are you kidding me? I mean, has the time flown? Some days feel like they go on forever and then you blink and it feels like we're still in the middle of March. Some of you have spent the last few months in your pajamas. You don't know what day it is. Time is, uh, we don't know what time is anymore in this weird season. But the calendar of the church is a way to rewrite us into the seasons of God and God's time to remind us that God is the Lord of time. And Advent, which anticipates the arrival of Jesus, is a time of waiting and longing and wondering and looking up to the heavens and saying, God, help. How long? Save. Where are you? It's a time to slow down, to take a deep breath as we go into shorter days and darker hours and time by the fire and with the family. Advent is an opportunity to remember God's greatest promise to us, Emmanuel, which we know means that God is with us. It's a time for us to be honest with God, again, as we should be daily, weekly, but uniquely in this time to be honest with God about our longings, to enter into the story of Israel and, and their longing and their waiting and their needing and their pleading and crying out, how long, O Lord? How long will we wait? How long will you relent? How long will these things that are going on in our lives be going on? How long with what we're facing right now as a people in the midst of this pandemic? And so we sing Advent songs. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, set us free. Set us free. I feel like these are songs that we are singing more deeply this year, songs that we know in our bones this year, even coming off of Thanksgiving. I know that many of you who are watching didn't get to do your normal Thanksgiving thing. You were going to travel. You couldn't travel. People were going to come in to see you. They couldn't come in to see you. Or maybe you were able to get together in a small group that's already in a bubble together, but normally you'd go out on Black Friday. There was none of that. Or you'd go see a movie. There was none of that. We know the longing in our bones this year. You know, on the one hand, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit laughable, the things that we get fired up about, the first world problems, right? Two-day shipping is now taking three to four days. Oh, the injustice, right? Oh, they're out of toilet paper for, you know, two weeks or a week. The Lord is, it's fall. The Lord has provided an abundance of leaves. Okay, get creative. But joking aside, what what about the big things? What about canceled plans? What what about some of you during this season who have tried to celebrate perhaps a birth or a wedding and your celebrations have been cut short? They've been stunted and circumvented. People who would have come haven't been able to show up. The celebrations have had to be shorter than normal. No reception this time around. Or perhaps you've been struck in the longing with the inability to grieve well during this time. 
Some of you have had to forego memorial services or people that would come to those services haven't been able to come. Some of you have lost loved ones where if it were not COVID, the room would have been full. And as it is, there's 20 or 30 folks who can be there if they're brave enough to maybe give you a hug and the rest are reduced to online streaming. We, we weren't meant to live like this. We weren't meant to celebrate or grieve in this way. We weren't meant to live with masks on and not be able to see each other's faces or not be able to touch one another. We were meant to be near, to hug. We're embodied souls to be in the flesh, to be close to one another. And these things have genuinely been taken away. And that's why as we enter into Israel's story in this season of Advent, it, it does feel like what we're in a time of exile. COVID feels like a little bit of exile, and perhaps that's overly dramatic. I mean, if you woke up this morning with food on your table and hot water, perhaps I'm stretching the analogy to compare the pandemic to exile, but, but maybe not. Maybe for some of you, this has been a really lonely time. I was talking with my dear friend Vince this last week about the statistics that are pertinent to our state, not national statistics, but Santa Fe, Santa Fe County, the reservations in our state, northern New Mexico, and the rates of depression and mental health and domestic abuse have skyrocketed, especially as it pertains to our children. This is horrific stuff, folks, and we're lonely, and this is hard. And all of your predictions, like mine, have been wrong. You know, when we, when we first did this deal in, in March, I was like, okay, yeah, cool. We'll take a break for two weeks, and then we'll see you in a minute. At, at most, we'll be doing this for a month. I mean, come on. And here we are, the first Sunday of Advent. The longing, the how long, O oh Lord, it can seem unending. And it makes us ask some really good questions, questions that the Scripture, through our text in Matthew chapter 1, asks us to ask. Does our life mean anything? Does our pain mean anything? Do our longings mean anything to God? Will God be faithful to us in those things? Can people like us, even us, be used in the plan and the kingdom of God. I mean, you know, we know people that are, that are really spiritual. Maybe they're doing great right now. You know, maybe during COVID, they decided they're going to do, you know, three hours of prayer every morning, every evening, and, you know, they've sold everything they had and give it to the poor. But can, can people like you and me be used? And lastly, where is this all going in the midst of ongoing uncertainty about our futures and the futures of our children and grandchildren? Where is this all going? We find ourselves in dim and darkness, the natural lights around us being turned down. Matthew chapter 1 is a reminder to us that God steps into the darkness with a divine act, with a supernatural light. So we sing the song, what child is this? And the scriptures invite us to look, take a look at who this Jesus is. Take a look at how Jesus comes and answers our deepest longings. Not in some abstract, out there, you know, silver surfer, sky beard, way far away, unmoved mover, kind of God sort of way. No. And not through religion and rules and works and doing. But in the birth of a child. And on those grounds, I just want to say that this text in Matthew, which the, the Bible authors believed was really important to be in our Bibles, is awesome. This text rocks. And yes, you heard me right. The genealogy is awesome. I love genealogies and I love this one. 
Because it's for you. This is a story for you. In our longing through Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, in our hunger, God brings us, as it were, Christmas steak and enchiladas. This is a rich text. And I want to show us why. I want to show us why the longings and the how long, O Lord, of Advent is met for us with four hopes. Four hopes for a COVID Christmas. Four hopes that I think, if you will, kind of form the legs of a stool. A four-legged stool upon which we, in our longings, can sit and rest and be still and know that He is God. So, four hopes for a COVID Christmas from Matthew's genealogy. Here we go. Number one, your life and my life means something. In fact, beyond that, life means something. This procession of names proves it. And don't get me wrong, as I read those names, there's a few that you recognize. Perhaps as you heard me talk about Jotham and Josiah and Hezekiah, you remembered the the kings of the divided kingdom after David and Solomon. Some were good and righteous and some were really wicked. Perhaps you picked up the name of Ruth and Boaz and you remember that story. Certainly, there's three stars of the show. That would be Abraham, David, and Jesus himself. But then there's just a bunch of random names. A bunch of names that would be completely lost to history and we wouldn't think about or talk about or care about unless it was for Matthew's genealogy. And that's a reminder to you that that we are not those who adhere to the worldview of naturalism. You know, that you're just matter and motion and time and chance banging around the ether. You get one life. Hopefully it's full of power and pleasure and you're happy and there isn't too much pain. And, you know, then at the end of that life, it's, it's done, it's over, it's dust, you know, and too bad for you if you had a really hard life. No, this list of names reminds us that our lives are not meaningless. They're never meaningless. Even when things around us, even when the things around us make us feel that way. And I think that's a really important point from the text. We should remember that the context in which Matthew is writing into. Matthew of the four gospel authors is probably the most Jewish. He quotes the most Old Testament scripture. He is eager to tie the Old and the New Testament together. And you have to remember that in Matthew's day, it was only the very, very, very few rich folks. The emperor and their friends. Herod and his friends. It was only them who had power. Everyone else was disenfranchised. There were no free and fair elections. They didn't do that sort of thing. Only the emperors and their friends had feasts. You know, some of us this last Thanksgiving had more food than we could even think about eating. A turkey, mashed potatoes, stuffing, cranberry sauce, my favorite food, gravy. And yes, that is a food. And you had more than you could eat on your table. In these days, nobody ate like that, except for the emperors and the kings. It was truly a world that was based on the survival of the fittest. And at this point in Jewish history, they're under Roman oppression, and so things look bleak. On top of that, the Old Testament prophets ended in the book of Malachi, 400 years of silence, And the Jews find themselves waiting, longing, searching the scriptures. When will the Savior come? 
When will the Messiah come onto the scene and rescue us from the darkness? And I think it's good to ask how we might enter into that story. Again, perhaps today you're, you're feeling great. You know, you're, you're at home, you've had a good breakfast, piping hot cup of coffee in front of you, things are going really well, you're full of thankfulness, so I don't want to put a damper on any of that. But perhaps for some of you, there's something or some things going on in your life that really make you feel like this. You know, the, the powerful get more powerful, the rich get richer. You've experienced injustice. There's no injustice. There's no feast on your table. Things look bleak. God seems to be silent. So just here, just here in that moment, when hope is dim, God steps in. Not only for the powerful, not only for the wealthy, not only for those who have means and understanding, but for all. I think it's good to illustrate this, and I don't know if you can see it on the video. I probably, I don't think you can, but you know here at Christ Church behind us, we have this tree, this tree that, that like the church, goes through the seasons. And a couple weeks ago, John was preaching, and I was sitting with my family in the back row, which is such a gift to be able to do that once in a while when John is preaching. And I looked up, and I saw the tree, and I thought to myself, oh, man, the tree, the tree doesn't look very good. The tree looks dead. The tree looks hopeless. And I thought, well, that's how a lot of us feel at times. If you just look at what's on the outside, what do you see? You see a tree that looks dead. There's no leaves. There's no vitality. There's no evidence of growth. It really does seem helpless. But the truth that Matthew chapter 1 brings us in the genealogy isn't what, isn't what the world shows. It's what God's people knows. It's not just what we feel, it's what we know. Because even if you look at the tree and the tree looks dead, regardless of how the tree feels or we feel about the tree, what we know is that the, the roots of the tree are deep. And that the tree is not dead at all. It's, in fact, it's alive. And when spring comes and the days get longer and we get some rain, that tree will burst forth with life again. This is the story and the promise of Matthew's genealogy, that our lives mean something, even when they look dead, even when your life looks like a lifeless, leafless tree. If our roots are in the God who steps in, then regardless of what we feel, we can know what we know. Well, what do we know? What's well, the second point? First point, life means something. The second point, God is truly faithful. This is what we know from the text. Matthew walks us through three sections of 14 names. Now, this is not a precise genealogy, meaning it doesn't name every single person. There are folks who are left out because Matthew's goal isn't here to be, you know, uh, exactly precise in the names and the lineage, but instead to give us a pattern to show us that it is God who works according to his promises and works in an orderly way. One covenant promise leads to the next. And so we start off, and I love this, we start off at the very beginning, the book of the genealogy. The book of the genealogy. Now in Greek, the word for genealogy is actually the same word that's used in the word Genesis. The book of the beginnings of Jesus Christ. So even though his name isn't mentioned, we're drawn to remember Adam himself. That God created all things. 
He made them good. He gave man a garden. He said, will you trust me? Will you love me? Will you let me show you what is good and evil based on my perfect moral character? Man in his freedom was tempted and fell, and the fall was devastating. As a result of the fall, we have all of our pains and all of our brokenness and baggage and shame and longings. We have all the brokenness of the world, both that is physical and that in our souls. But in the same moment that man fell, God promised that a seed would come. He said, I will send one who one day will come, light into the darkness. One day one will arrive in all of your longings, in all of your needs, and what will he do? He'll crush the head of the serpent. God is truly faithful. Matthew then leads us to focus on Abraham. Abraham, who walked by faith, who left his homeland, who traveled out into the wilderness, who believed God's promise, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, what I love about the covenant, the promise made with Abraham, is that when God makes that covenant, that he will bless Abraham, that he'll have a huge family, that his descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. What does he do to Abraham? He puts him to sleep. They cut the animal in the covenant to walk through it to make this ancient Near Eastern contract. And before Abraham can take a single step, do a single work, earn a single ability to boast in his own ability to keep the contract, God says, go to bed. And the Lord himself walks through as the blazing fire pot. Then we get to David, especially in 2 Samuel 16, where the Lord says to David, you will have a son on the throne forever. Your throne will never go away, David. And then we get to the exile in our text. And at the exile, all of the Jews who were reading this and those who had put their faith in Jesus would have shuddered because this was a moment of absolute hopelessness in Israel's history. Ouch. Can it ever be undone? Ten northern tribes are wiped off the face of the planet and now we're only left with Judah in the south. What will happen as they are carried off to Babylon? But even then, after 70 years, the Lord is faithful and God's people are able to begin a return. And so the thread of the genealogy, what it's trying to teach us and what it's trying to set up for us as we jump into the rest of Matthew's gospel is that God is truly faithful. His faithfulness is the thread. And I just want to say, if you're watching this and you're a Christian, if your hope and trust is in Jesus, that's the thread of your life. That's what holds us together. Not our ups and our downs, not the good seasons and the bad seasons, not our abilities to make it happen, to fix it or to get it right, but God's faithfulness is the thread. I love this quote. One commentator puts it this way in reference to Jesus' genealogy here. He says, it would do us well as Christians to tear out the page between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book of the New, Matthew. There shouldn't be a page there that divides those. Tear out the page because the Old Testament is testifying to the coming of Christ and the New Testament is testifying to the Christ who has come, has risen, and will come again. From the first Adam in his fall to the second Adam in his victory to the return of the second Adam where he will bring us home forever. So Matthew chapter 1, this genealogy, this Genesis, is really about God's faithfulness bringing forth new beginnings, new creation. This is why it pertains to us, because ours is a God of second chances. 
He's a God of the underdogs. As we sang this morning, he has no rival. He has no equal. Not only does your life mean something, but God has promised to be faithful in your life and to love and care for the weak and the broken and the downtrodden. And the list itself proves that. So life means something. God is truly faithful. And thirdly, all saints and sinners are welcome. Uh, This last Thanksgiving, I sat down with my dad, and he's, in recent years, he and my mom have done a bunch of work on Ancestry.com to find out some stuff about our family, which thankfully is mostly good. Um, Be careful how deep you dig on Ancestry.com, which you might find. And, you know, he's put these books together because, you know, he used to be a scientist, and so it's like spreadsheets and all this stuff and arrows, and it's really, it's actually really cool to go, oh, man. On my mom's side, this is where they came from. And on my dad's side, this is where we came from. And this kind of explains the the DNA test. And here's some things that folks in our family did that were really cool. And looking at these old pictures and beautiful people. Well, this ancestry, this genealogy, this work of Ancestry.com in the New Testament proves to us that God keeps his promises to the underdogs, that he's a God of second chances. Because it shows us that all saints and sinners are welcome. I mean, just look who's included and check your assumptions as you do. Look in the mirror and check your own little religious, pretentious assumptions. I need to do the same because this is a family tree that, you know, I don't know if you would want to be your family tree. And it's a big deal to the Jews in particular. You know, in 2020, we don't tend to identify as much with our family trees. Uh, We have more kind of smaller family groupings, and it's not so much an issue of, you know, our name and our family, you know, back however many generations. We tend to identify more with our success, how we as individuals and in our small family units have been successful in life. But for the Jews in the ancient Near East, it was all about your family line. You'd be blessed if you had a good family line. You'd be cursed if you had a bad family line. And so when we get to this lot, this cast of characters, this ridiculous list of people, you have to think, no way. Uh, Some of these people have to be completely unusable. I mean, yes, we've got David and Abraham and some good kings, but we've also got bad kings and misfits and the morally bankrupt. We've got the corrupt. We've got those who had a meteoric rise and a tremendous downfall, like both David and Solomon and their sons. And I wonder if any of you have ever felt that way, just unusable or trapped Or maybe I know where I've come from and it's too hard. I can't get past that. You know, what what happened in my past, what's shaped me. You know, I'm I'm a victim of those things. I I can't surmount those challenges. The genealogy is a reminder that that is indeed untrue. Not because God's heart doesn't break for what you've been through, but because it broke on the cross of Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead. And so there's hope for redemption even if you feel or have felt unusable in your own life and family. So who's in the line? Well, you know, we we could go through a a bunch of different examples, but I figured I'd pick the most outrageous and scandalous of all and let the ladies go first. Yes, ladies first, and there are five women named in this line. And that, first of all, should stop us in our tracks because they have, uh, scholars have dug up hundreds of genealogies and none of them include women. The line went through the men. You just, don't, you just don't need to put them in there, do you? Which is ridiculous. Of course you do. But, but this is radical that these ladies are mentioned. 
the first we, we get is, is Tamar. And you can go back and read her story in Genesis. It's a little bit scandalous. Find out what happened there with Judah. Then we have Rahab, who was literally a prostitute. I mean, can you imagine? If you're writing a Bible, if you're writing a holy book, and you're including a genealogy, and you're like, oh, yeah, remember old Aunt Ethel? You know, the, who, who spent her time in the red light district? I mean, it's crazy. Then we have Ruth, who's a foreigner, a Gentile. Then we have Bathsheba, who, who's, whose story is so shameful that her name isn't even mentioned. She's called the wife of Uriah. And it all ends with this little girl named Mary. A little girl named Mary. Who cares? Some of you watching this right now are probably between, you know, 12 and 18 years old. Young men and young women. I mean, Mary in this day and age, she was, she was a young girl. She was nameless. She didn't have money. She didn't have pedigree. She was just a nobody. And so Tim Keller has a really great quote to sum up just the beauty and the scandal of the names on this list. He says, over and over again, God says, I will choose Nazareth, not Jerusalem. I will choose the girl nobody wants. I will choose the boy everybody has forgotten. Remember, Rahab and Ruth were Gentiles. Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba were women of questionable character. The lineage is composed of men, women, adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, and Gentiles. And Jesus will be the Savior of them all. The morally questionable, the ethnically diverse, the lost, the forgotten, the broken, the untouchable. They are those things no more. For Jesus has come to save all. I don't know how many of you have been watching the Netflix show, The Crown, and we're not going to do a spoiler alert here because this is public knowledge and it actually really did happen in the life of Princess Diana. But there's a moment in the show where she's traveling to some of these hospitals to be with the sick and the poor. And in those days, people were extremely fearful of HIV AIDS. And so it kind of like we have in the COVID thing in the hospital, you know, is behind a bunch of walls and plate glass and everybody putting on their PPE and all that kind of stuff. And the lat you just didn't go near people like that. You didn't touch people like that. They had done something wrong. They were wicked or how, who knows how they got it with some like morally whatever thing. And in the show, there's this beautiful moment where Diana's in the hospital and she comes upon a young boy who has, who's infected with HIV and she walks right up to him and to the horror and the gasp of the media and everyone standing around, she reaches down and gives him a hug. And man, when I watch that, not just because I'm a dad who's weepy and cries at everything now, although that's true, but man, I got tears in my eyes. I was like, that's the gospel. That's the gospel of the God who reminds me that my life means something, that he's truly faithful, that all saints and sinners are welcome. That no one is forgotten, that no one is unusable or unlovable or, or, or discarded. That the family line of Jesus shows me that God is the kind of God who reaches down to the ones who cannot be touched and puts his arm around them. And finally, we see that Jesus came to save. That's where this all finds its climax. Because God can't put his arms around Sin. He can't wince at sin. He is perfectly and completely just. And so Jesus had to be both just and the justifier. Jesus had to take our sin, forgive our sin, give us his Holy Spirit that we might turn from sin, and give us the power to be raised from the dead. 
It's interesting, isn't it, in 2020 that all these old empires are gone. Assyria is gone. Rome is gone. Babylon is gone. Empires rise and fall. The average empire in the last 3,000 years has a lifespan of 250 years as a dominant world superpower. They come and they go. And from the time of Jesus, the maps have all been redrawn. But John 3.16 has not changed. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish and die and be forgotten and unusable, but will be saved and have everlasting life. And so the anticipation and the longing of Advent, it leads us to this shocking arrival that God himself must come. That as the world screams at us, save yourself. And as we know deep down in our souls, I can't. Jesus says, I can. I can and I will. Which is why Matthew reminds us that he's not only Jesus, but he is called the Christ. Verse 15, the anointed one, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And so we have to come to this Jesus with no conditions no self-righteousness, no self-help, no other king or kingdom. We have to lay it all down and say, Jesus, it's you. You're everything. You are the one who can help. You are the one who can save. And in that, we find our hope. I wonder if today your light is burning dim. I wonder if your Advent candle has almost gone out. I wonder if you feel like finding yourself in Isaiah 42, a faintly burning wick, well, hear this good news. A faintly burning wick, a faintly burning wick he will not put out. A bruised reed he will not break. God has told us in his gospel, and especially in this text, that your life means something. He knits you together in your mother's womb. He knows you by name. And God is faithful. He is faithful and just. He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness in Jesus. All saints and sinners are welcome. All you have to do is believe in Jesus, the one who came to save. Let's pray. Lord, even in our prayer, we cry out, how long? How long till we can be back together in person, till we can hug, hold hands, till we can be side by side in this place, your church? How long? And we know that that time is coming, but we know that because of the arrival, the advent, the appearance of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the living God, our how long is answered in the response of now. Now, by faith, you can have Jesus. And I would just, I would invite all of us in this prayer to ask, have I, have I asked Jesus to come and to help me? I would implore all of us, prepare him room. He is the one who comes to save. He is faithful. And we are welcome. Thank you for that, our Father. We pray through your Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.